Let's pray together. Father, as we think about you, as we think about your word, and this infinite separation between what this Bible is and everything else that's been written by man throughout all of history, this communication of your heart and your will and your mind to us, we're amazed at it. And again, we thank you for the privilege of being able to study it. We know that you have provided every passage of Scripture with a, a purpose that it would be accomplished in our lives and that those purposes in your word will not return void. And we pray, Lord, for the work of your Holy Spirit in each one of our hearts that you would accomplish your purposes through this passage in our lives. We pray that you give us that kind of anticipation as we turn to your word tonight and we look forward to you continuing to build our lives and uh, disciple us as Christians and to continue to build us into maturity. And we pray and we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Good evening. Please be seated. Acts chapter 2, Sunday night through the Bible, Genesis to Revelation. We come to Acts chapter uh, 2. We remember as we uh, uh, find our way and in, in, uh, picking things up in verse 14, that last time we studied the events associated with uh, the fulfillment of the Feast of Pentecost by uh, the coming of the Holy Spirit upon the 120 in the upper room, the birth formerly of the church uh, on that, that day, the supernatural manifestations of the Spirit associated uh, with that event of the baptism with the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit coming upon them, the great noise as a, a great rushing, mighty rushing wind, uh, the tongues of fire uh, 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 sitting above the heads of each of the 120 and in, the, uh, in that upper room, and then everyone speaking in tongues, and in that tongues presumably spilling out onto the street from that upper room, and then the tongues uh, being the praising of God. The supernatural phenomenon uh, immediately drew a crowd. Uh, Jerusalem at the time of the feast days would go from a population of about a half a million or less to up to two million, one to two million people within the cities. Pilgrims would come from all around the world to worship the Lord during the three great uh, feasts of the Jewish a religious calendar and so they this phenomenon occurs they come to the location of this great noise and they encounter uh, this uh, work of the Holy Spirit coming upon the lives of the disciples and uh, there were two responses to all of this uh, some people responded as you look there in uh, verse 8 with kind of an honest reaction to the phenomenon of what's going on and they asked how and how is it that we hear each in our own language in which we are born uh, this praising of the Lord and then also in verse 12 uh, they were all amazed perplexed and they said to one another whatever could this mean so they are bringing honest questions to what it is that God has done in birthing the church here with that baptism with the Holy Spirit 
and um, and then uh, of course not everyone was uh, open-minded related to it in verse 13 uh, others mocked all of it and they said these people are full uh, of wine so Peter stands up now and he's going to preach the first sermon uh, of of the church age in in since the the day of Pentecost and Peter here is the poster child for what the Holy Spirit accomplishes in the life of a Christian. And that is, the, as we remember, the Holy Spirit is always with us as Christians. As Christians, the Holy Spirit, He's always with everybody, but He's with us as Christians as well. He is in us. That's what the spiritual birth accomplishes, Him coming into our life. And then Jesus spoke about Him coming upon our lives and uh, coming forth as a torrent of living water out of our innermost being. In other words, giving us the power to be a witness for Him anywhere in the world, not only having power and refreshment from the Holy Spirit for our own lives, but kind of being spiritual drinking fountains for the rest of the world so that when people come into contact with us, they will come into contact with the person of the Holy Spirit. So Peter now stands up and you remember just 50 days earlier, uh, he was asked three times on the morning of Jesus' crucifixion, uh, people uh, identified him with Christ, aren't you one of his disciples? And you remember that he denied Christ three times. And it wasn't that he didn't love the Lord. It wasn't that he wasn't even determined not to. Jesus had uh, prophesied that he would do that. He says, if they kill me, I won't do that. And that's, that's the Christian life apart from the Holy Spirit. I, I want to. I want to live this kind of life. But then when push comes to shove, I don't have the power to do it. I don't have the how to do it. To be a witness for Christ in every environment. Those that are uh, beautiful where we get to worship the Lord in song. And those that are hostile to us and to our uh, faith. And so he has... Um, failed miserably in, in attempting to live for the Lord in his own strength and his own determination. And now we see him after the baptism with the Holy Spirit, and he's like the poster child. He is the advertisement for the baptism with the Holy Spirit in the book of Acts because we don't even recognize him. Now he's going to stand up in the city where Jesus was crucified where he couldn't stand 50 days earlier, the place is absolutely mobbed with one to two million people, most of them pilgrims, and it's the same crowd uh, <clears throat> that was in many respects endorsing and, and some of them actually participating, whether actively or tacitly, in the crucifixion of Jesus, that same crowd, only much larger numbers, and he stands up and he is going to preach to them uh, in this environment. And so we say here in verse 14, Peter standing up with the 11. So he stands, the 11, the other apostles stand with him. He's now going to speak on behalf of all of them. He raised his voice and he said to them, men of brethren, men of Ju Judea, and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and heed my words. What he's going to do here in terms of the sermon he's going to preach is he's simply going to address 
the questions, the honest questions that some people were asking about uh, the, the uh, supernatural of the Holy Spirit that was occurring on that day, and then also to address uh, the misconceptions of other people uh, and, and the scorning of what it was that was happening and calling the disciples what they were doing was all a result of being drunk. I, I would contend that he, he, here he is, he doesn't like um, uh, uh, run people over with a truck or something like this. He doesn't force himself on them in any way. I think if the average Christian, and myself included, in the city of Modesto spoke up uh, and, and responded to every honest, legitimate question that people have in terms of our contact with them in the course of a year, the honest questions that they have about God and they have about life and, and, and what the Bible has to say uh, about that. What is, this, what is this life about? What does this mean? Or to uh, speak into the ignorance of people concerning Christianity um, that they aren't even aware of how ignorant that they are and, uh, and uh, even scorning in their misconceptions of Christianity. To do it gently, to do it naturally, I would guess that if we engaged in those open doors the way that Peter does here, virtually everyone in Modesto would hear the name of Christ in the course of a year. Uh, and because this is going on all around us, and one of the things that Peter teaches us here is to step, recognize those things as open doors, and to, with meekness and humility, but boldness to speak into the questions, even the mocking that is on the minds uh, of, of people. So he stands up, he gets their attention uh, by offering them an explanation for uh, the events, and he said, if they'll he you heed my words, I'll explain everything about what is going on here. He began by addressing the mockers in verse 15, for these are not drunk, as you suppose, since it is only the third hour of the day. The third hour of the day, the day began for the Jewish uh, daily calendar, began at six in the morning, so it's only nine o'clock in the morning as these things are happening. And he said, it's uh, to have this many people all in one place, drunk during a feast day in Jerusalem, come on, think about that. That's not a legitimate uh, 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 conclusion to come to concerning all of this. You're not being honest in how you are assessing it. Josephus tells us that even further, uh, we would look at it and say, yeah, you know, I mean, even in the craziest neighborhoods <laughs> that anybody might live in, uh, you don't have large groups of people drunk at nine in the morning. But this would have meant more to the Jew than it does to the Gentile, to us for the most part. And that is on feast day or religious holidays, the Jews would never begin to drink 
until after the, the main offering that would be offered in celebration of that holy day or that feast day had been offered. And so none of those things had happened yet at that time in the morning. And so Peter is speaking to them about uh, the, the lack of foundation uh, altogether with, and dishonesty really coming to a conclusion like that. And then he moved on now to answer uh, the questions of the other group and he gives them a, notice, a biblical basis for uh, this demonstration of the Holy Spirit. A biblical, uh, uh, it gives them a biblical basis for it. And he tells them that what is happening here is a fulfillment of Joel's prophecy. And, uh, and he quotes from Joel chapter 2, but this is what was spoken by the prophet Joel. So he, he wants this Jewish crowd that is probably um, in large part uh, either ignorant of Christianity or what Christ has come to do, or they are hostile towards Christianity. And, and so he knows the, the best way to address them is to give them a biblical basis for what it is that they are seeing. This is that which was spoken by the prophet Joel. It's a fulfillment, he says, uh, of Joel. Joel chapter 2, Joel prophesied, and it shall come to pass in the last days, says the Lord, that I will pour out of my Spirit on all flesh. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, young men shall see visions, your old men shall dream dreams. On my men servants and on my maid servants, I will pour out uh, my spirit in those days, and they shall uh, prophesy. I will show wonders in heaven above, signs uh, in the earth beneath, blood and fire and vapor of smoke. The sun shall be turned into darkness and the moon into blood before the coming of the great and awesome day of the Lord, and it shall come to pass that whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be uh, saved. And so uh, we, he, he lets them know that, no, you can't dismiss Jesus Christ. You cannot dismiss uh, Christianity as some kind of a, a crazy thing that does not have a biblical foundation for, uh, for it. And, and he gives them that uh, that, uh, that foundation for this baptism with the Holy Spirit that they were witnessing uh, in the lives uh, of others. And that Joel had said, prophesied uh, hundreds of years previously that in the last days he would pour his Holy Spirit out upon all flesh. And you see that word uh, uh, on that's repeated there in that passage that he quotes from Joel. And, uh, and it is um, in the Greek, as, as the Hebrew of, of Joel is translated into the Greek here, it is the word epi, E-P-I. It is the word for the baptism with the Holy Spirit. Uh, the Holy Spirit coming upon a person to give us the power to be witnesses to Jesus in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the uttermost parts of the earth. Here is a prophecy of the baptism with the Holy Spirit all the way back in Joel chapter 2, and here he says, you're seeing the fulfillment of it. I think it's very important um, for us as Christians that any time we are going to advance something or we are going to believe in some uh, kind of activity that is being ascribed to the Holy Spirit, 
that we ask ourselves or ask others for a biblical foundation for that phenomenon. There is all kinds of craziness that goes on in the lives of those that call themselves Christians uh, and they ascribe it to the Holy Spirit and there is no biblical foundation for it. And typically they'll say, well, they argue from silence. They will argue and say, well, there isn't, we really don't see this in Scripture, but we don't see it forbidden in Scripture. Peter doesn't do that. He doesn't argue from silence for an experience with the Holy Spirit. He's able to give chapter and verse for what it is that is happening here. There is so much that is legitimate to experience concerning the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives as Christians and His work in, in the world, so much that's legitimate, there's no need to go beyond that and then invent the unscriptural activities uh, to uh, focus on and to absorb our time. And Peter models something very, very uh, important for us here. You notice that the last days, as he speaks about it there in verse 17, that the last days, uh, biblically speaking, they're framed by uh, two events. The last days began with kind of the formal birth of the church on the day uh, of, of Pentecost. And so we are living in the last days before uh, Jesus' return by virtue of being on the other side of uh, of this, uh, this uh, baptism with the Holy Spirit on the day of Pentecost. And then the last days in verses 19 to 21, the last days are going to conclude with God's judgment upon the earth, Jesus' second coming, uh, that period of time that we know as the seven-year tribulation uh, period. And so the last days, the church age, will uh, include, uh, Peter tells us here, Joel tells us, it's going to include supernatural gifts. It's going to include uh, supernatural workings of the Holy Spirit. It will include prophecy and visions uh, and dreams. And that the entire age, and it's wonderful to realize that these gifts of the Holy Spirit, the baptism of the Holy Spirit, will still be available to Christians during the tribulation period um, if they come to know the Lord following the rapture of the church. And so nothing is going to be held back from those believers during that period uh, that is our portion uh, as well. And so the last days, this age of God's grace, is going to end uh, in, uh, in judgment, and we are in the middle of, uh, or hopefully not in the middle of, but uh, somewhere well along the line of what the Bible considers to be the last day wrapping up with Jesus' second coming. And then Peter, um, uh, in, uh, in verse 22, he immediately, having given them the biblical foundation for what it is that's happening here, he immediately turns the sermon to Jesus. And the sooner that we can do that, a conversation with somebody uh, about Christianity, the sooner we can get it to Jesus, uh, the better. And he does that. I don't know uh, about you. Um, I don't get that many Mormons and Jehovah Witnesses coming to my doorstep anymore. I think they've marked me off or something. I don't know. They keep a, a ledger on it because I'm always generally pretty excited to see them coming. 
And so they come to the door, and if it's a Jehovah Witness, typically they will talk about how terrible the world is and, and all of these kind of things. And, and so they'll draw the conversation into how hopeless everything looks and do you have hope and all of that. And so I'm, I'm a very polite person, and I'm even more polite one-on-one. -on -one. And, uh, and, and so I will listen a, a little bit, but the, then I will shift it very quickly to Jesus and let them know that uh, I, I'm a Christian and the, the big issues that you and I have is your estimation of Jesus as opposed to what the Bible teaches concerning Him. That He is the Son of God, that He is divine, why that's important. And then we move to that, uh, that subject because uh, that's the main thing related to salvation. What do we think of Jesus and have we put our faith in Him? Not the condition of the world, however bad that it, it might be. And so we shift over that. Peter models that very same thing here. And so he shifts to Jesus and what he does is he preaches Jesus' uh, life, His death, and His resurrection. Verse 22, he speaks about Jesus' life. Uh, verse 23, about Jesus' death. And then verse 24, uh, His resurrection. And so, I mean, he's got a dial in. He's so concise. He said, men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs which God did through Him in your midst, as you yourselves also know. He, says, he, he speaks about Jesus' life. And Him being delivered by the determined purpose and foreknowledge of God, you have taken by lawless hands and have crucified and put to death. Speaking of His death, and then His resurrection, whom God raised up, having loosed the pains of death, because it was not possible that He should be uh, kept or held uh, by it. And so, He speaks to them, begins to preach about Jesus' life, his, his death, and His resurrection, and, uh, and He begins to speak to them about their place in, uh, in Jesus' crucifixion. And then he quotes David again. He wants, their, he wants their faith in Jesus Christ uh, uh, as Messiah and as their Savior to be founded on the Scriptures, not upon uh, supernatural phenomenon. The supernatural phenomenon got their attention. It raised their interest. But now he moves to the Scriptures as the foundation for trusting in Jesus as the promised uh, Messiah. And he then gives them and he gives us five reasons for putting our faith in Jesus as Messiah and as our Lord. Verse 22 again, uh, the witness of his perfect life and the miracles of his life. Number two in verse 22, the witness and the favor of God the Father upon his life. All of the signs, all of the wonders, all of uh, the miracles that marked his life were one of the ways that, Father, that God the Father uh, communicated to the world, this is my uh, only begotten Son, and that He is the Messiah and the Savior. Now, no uh, uh, Jewish life in, in Jewish history, uh, let alone any Gentile life, has ever approached the sheer amount of miracles and signs and wonders that were done by Jesus 
in the three and a half years of his, his public ministry. And, and Peter is telling them, and they all knew about the miracles. They all knew about this stuff. And they had not let that fact that these things were a witness to uh, the, uh, the fact that he was the Messiah didn't allow that, them, uh, those things to lead them to that destination they were intended to lead them to, and that is to trust in him uh, as the Messiah. The same thing is true of every person in the world today. And the, and the challenge is, what do you do with his life? What do you do with his teaching? What do you do with his miracles? What do you do with the perfection of his engagement with every single person? You must do something with it. You must come to some conclusion related to uh, uh, these things. And these things existed in Jesus' life in order to get us to give serious thought to him and then realize, no, this is the Messiah that the Father promised uh, to the world. Jesus said, believe me that I am in the Father and the Father in me, or else believe in me for the sakes of the works themselves. They were intended, still intended, to provoke faith uh, in Christ. When he talks there in verse 23 about Jesus uh, uh, being uh, delivered by the determined purpose and foreknowledge of God. God foreordained the death, the burial, the resurrection uh, of uh, Jesus, but they were still responsible for the part that they played in it. The fact that God knows this is what is going to happen, even foreordains that it's going to happen, does not erase the responsibility of those people who have participated uh, in in accomplishing that. The next thing that he does is he uh, he calls on them to trust in Jesus for salvation, again, based on the witness of the Old Testament Scriptures. And in verse 25, he quotes uh, King David in Psalm 16, a, a very, very messianic psalm among the Psalms. David wrote, I foresaw the Lord always before my face, for He is at my right hand that I may not be shaken. Therefore my heart rejoiced and my tongue was glad. Moreover, my flesh also will rest in hope, for you will not leave my soul in Hades. David speaks this to God the Father. And then by the Holy Spirit, his attention is drawn over then to the coming of Messiah, nor will you allow your Holy One to see corruption. You have made known to me the ways of life, and you will make me full of joy in your presence. So David prophesied that he would, he would die, but that he would not remain in, uh, in Hades, that one day as an Old Testament saint, he'll be ra- raised up into the glory, uh, would be raised up into the glory of heaven at the time uh, of Messiah, the time of Jesus' uh, resurrection from the dead. But then he declared that concerning the Messiah, yes, he would die. But he would not remain in that dead condition long enough for his body to see corruption. It's a prophecy of Jesus' resurrection uh, from, uh, from the dead. And so uh, he, he, again, wants the, the foundation for their faith to be upon their Scriptures, the Old Testament uh, Scriptures, and not even supremely upon the miracles of, of the day of, of Pentecost. And then he said, men and brethren, let me 
Verse 29, Men and brethren, let me speak freely to you of the patriarch David, that he is both dead and buried. Uh, here a thousand years later, uh, he wasn't talking about himself, because, um, did I just sound like Obama? Uh, just for a second there on that. Sometimes I've watched too much news in the past and all. Uh, so, so for a thousand years, David has uh, been dead and his body in the grave. Clearly this did not speak uh, to him, uh, Peter is saying. And therefore, being a prophet and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that of the fruit of his body, according to the flesh, he would raise up the Christ to sit on the throne. And that was David's understanding in writing this by the Holy Spirit. He's writing here, not of his own life, but of the Messiah who would come through his uh, bloodline of the resurrection of, uh, of that Christ. And he foreseeing this spoke concerning the resurrection of the Christ that his soul was not left in Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. And then he moves to a fourth witness uh, uh, to and cause for faith in Jesus. And this Jesus God has raised up of which we are all witnesses. Speaking to the hundred of the 120 in the upper room, but really speaking uh, uh, to uh, any person that has had their life through the 2,000 years changed by virtue of his resurrection from uh, the dead. So we are eyewitnesses of all of uh, these things that we're telling you. And therefore, being exalted to the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, He poured uh, uh, out this which you now see and that you uh, hear. And so uh, He speaks about the fifth reason for trusting in Jesus as Messiah uh, as Savior, and that is the witness of the Holy Spirit to what Jesus taught. You remember Jesus, as we were going through the Scriptures, He had promised that, uh, that He spoke to them about His ascension earlier in the book of Acts, and then in the book of John, that He needed to ascend into heaven. And when, when He did, He would then send another comforter, the Holy Spirit now, to uh, accomplish in and through them uh, by the Holy Spirit, what Jesus had been for three and a half years of His public ministry. And so, how, how did the disciples, how do, do we know that when Jesus ascended up into heaven, that that promise was true, that He ended up in heaven and sitting at the right hand of the Father? Well, the evidence was He sent the Holy Spirit. So He didn't just disappear in the sky somewhere as they were looking up. Everything that He was saying was, was true. And here it is, uh, the witness of, uh, uh, of the presence of the Holy Spirit, the witness of the Holy Spirit to what Jesus had, had taught and, uh, and the life that He had, had lived. And so He goes on and He speaks about this. Uh, the, again, a biblical foundation for it. For David did not ascend into the heavens. So He says again, David's not talking about himself. And now here he quotes from Psalm 110, another psalm of David, very messianic psalm, and, and uh, David did not ascend into the heavens, but he says himself, 
the Lord, that is God the Father, said to my Lord, that is Jesus the Son, sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. So Jesus is presently the right hand of the Father. He is waiting for uh, the, uh, ultimately for the, the, his second coming where he will establish his kingdom age. He will take and, and make his enemies uh, uh, his uh, footstool. And, and so again, none of this speaking of David, but speaking of the Messiah and, and uh, uh, of, of, again, the biblical foundation for him, faith in him as the Messiah and Savior. And therefore, uh, uh, Peter preaches here, therefore let all the house of Israel know assuredly that God has made this Jesus whom you crucified both Lord and Christ. And that's known as clarity. And what Peter does here is he drives home their guilt concerning the death of their Messiah and concerning the death of the Savior of the world. You remember Jesus was talking about, at one time he was talking about the generation of Jews that was alive at the time. Now remember, many Jews put their faith in Jesus as Messiah and, and believed in Him to salvation during his, his lifetime as well. The entire early church was Jewish. So we're not talking about all Jews. But you remember that the, the Jewish religious leaders and the Jewish kind of uh, experts, they considered themselves to be uh, more spiritual, better than uh, their ancestors who had killed the prophets that had been sent to them and wouldn't listen to what they said. And Jesus prophesied to them, no, you're going to do something even worse. Uh, they killed the prophets who spoke of the Messiah. Before this is all said and done, you're going to be the generation that kills the Messiah. And we read that kind of thing as a Gentile, and it's like, okay, that's, that's intensely heavy. But you put yourself in, in the mind and in the heart of a Jew, and to realize at that moment, this all explodes in their heart and their mind, and it becomes crystal clear. And they realize, oh no, we are guilty of having crucified our own Messiah. That is, that is the generation of Jews that we will always be a part of. And so this is going to just hit them like a ton of bricks. And that's exactly how it, it, it hits them. And Peter is going to establish their guilt before God. And, and he's going to establish their need for God's forgiveness related to their sin. The greatness of this sin, but the need for any of us to have forgiveness in order to be right with God. And so he, he makes clear their guilt and their need for Jesus for the forgiveness of that sin. No, no presentation of the gospel is ever complete if people don't understand their guilt before God. 
I mean, why would I, why would I need a Savior? You talk to me about getting a Savior, needing a Savior, needing a Savior. I don't know what I need to be saved from. That's a culture that we live in. And so there has to be the bad news of our guilt before God because of our sin and our need for forgiveness in order to appreciate the good news that God sent Jesus to provide that forgiveness for our sin. And Peter makes sure that that is not going to be lost. And, and then uniquely for who they were to drive that, that guilt home in a way that, that was inescapable uh, uh, for them. And so the, uh, so often, you know, we have a, I've, he's with the Lord now, but I used to know the, the guy that started the Calvary Chapel in Las Vegas. And, uh, and, and as he started the church there, and, and, uh, and he declared that when he moved there and uh, to start the church, the city of Las Vegas boasted having the lowest crime rate in the United States of America. And he's like, wow, what a great city I've come to. And then he realized it was because nothing's illegal there. <laughs> And, and that's the way our culture is, by and large. The redefining uh, of sin and in order to escape a sense of guilt and, and, and a guilt before God. So it has to be love, done lovingly, but it has to be done firm, firmly where people and every person has a right to, to hear the truth about our condition and God's provision for it to, to make clear you are a sinner. You've been less than perfect all of your life. It has separated you from a relationship with God, the relationship that you've been created for. And faith in Jesus Christ is God's solution to that problem. And, and then now they realize, that's why I need to believe in Christ and to be uh, born again. And now the thing uh, comes together uh, for them. I don't care how much sin they legalize in our culture. I mean, you see the, one of the cities up in Oregon there, the, uh, Portland, they uh, legalized you know, personal amounts of uh, fentanyl and heroin and methamphetamine. And you, see, you read it in the newspaper and you go, this cannot end well. And it's not. It's a disaster. So all of these things ultimately break down and, and create their, uh, their casualties. But I don't care how much sin gets redefined in our culture. People know they're sinners. You can't pass laws and completely silence the conscience that is in every person given to us by God, whether we're saved or we're unsaved. And that conscience that declares, I should never do wrong, and I should always do right. So it doesn't matter how fast and loose the culture plays with sin in an attempt to dismiss uh, guilt, and guilt before God is an old-fashioned notion that is holding us back from some evolutionary jump. It will always be there. And when we let people make known to them our guilt before God and God's provision, now it's the Holy Spirit's job 
to make, help them realize uh, the truth of that, and he will always be faithful to do it. We must not yield to the culture on this, this issue, but to, to bring people, and, and again, in a way that looks like Christ, to uh, a, an acknowledgement of our need for Christ, which means being brought face to face with our guilt before God. Their reaction is given to us, in, and it doesn't surprise us, in verse 37. Um, now, when they heard this, they were cut to the heart. It's just like a, it, it, their hearts were pained. It's like they're stabbed in their, in their heart. All the heart speaks of the deepest part of their life. What Peter said was just so white, hot, pure, and true. And they knew it. And the Holy Spirit bore witness to it that they were immediately convicted. What in the world have we done? And is there any hope for us in the eyes of God as a result of it? When they heard this, they were cut to the heart and they said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, men and brethren, what shall we do? And that's what happens when real conviction occurs related to sin. What shall we do? And Peter doesn't stop and say, that's all. I'm just here to show you your guilt. And uh, boy, I sure wouldn't want to be in your shoes and face God someday. I don't care what sin any of us commit. I don't care what lifetime of sin any of us commit. No sin, including participating actively or tacitly in the very crucifixion of Jesus Christ, no sin is greater than the forgiveness of God when we put our faith in Him for that forgiveness. And so Peter said to them, all right, men and brethren, what shall we do? That's known as an open door. You can drive a white freight liner through that open door. And Peter said to them, repent. Repent means to have a change of mind that produces a change of direction. It means to turn. That's what repentance is. And he called on them to repent. To repent of their sin, to repent of their unbelief concerning Christ, to repent of the self-will within their life, to have a change of mind about who they are, the life that they're living, uh, what it is that they do and don't have with God, and then to make a U-turn and to change from that. Repent, the very first word of Jesus' public ministry was the word repent. Turn. Turn. Turn from your sin, turn from your self-will, and turn to God. And when Jesus called on the world to repent for the kingdom of God is at hand, He said it as if He was saying something helpful for people, good for people to hear. And, and so often this idea of re repent, the, you know, and this kind of thing, and people with sandwich boards, and it's like, like this is the worst thing that a person could ever hear in life. Well, it may be in the heart of a person whose heart hasn't been prepared by God for recognizing our sin and putting our faith in Christ, 
But when we have been in the driver's seat of our life and we have a lifetime of sin behind us and a life of sin that is holding us in bondage, when someone like Jesus Christ comes to us and tells us to repent and it's an offer, that's great news. That tells us, that informs the entire world of the fact there is another life. There's another way to live in the opposite direction of the way that you're living and it's God's way and it's open to you but you need to repent. And for the person who's done with their sin, sick of their sin, sick of ruling their own life, like we all understand, repentance is a very generous offer and, and uh, an exciting word to us uh, coming from God. He said, repent and let every one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. You'll be born uh, again for the promises to you and to your children and to who, all who are afar off, as many as the Lord our God will call. And with many other words he testified and exhorted them, saying, Be saved from this perverse uh, generation. And so he calls on them uh, to repent. He calls on them uh, that they would uh, then uh, be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness, uh, the remission of sins. So Peter is really calling on them to trust in Jesus for the forgiveness of their sins and then to publicly uh, uh, demonstrate that decision to, to trust in Christ uh, uh, by uh, a demonstration of their faith by being water baptized and told them that if they would do that, they'd receive the gift of the Holy Spirit and, and be born again. Now there are some people, they use this verse uh, there in verse 38 and they come up with a doctrine that's called baptismal regeneration, that a person is not saved until they are water baptized. And that view comes principally from uh, this, this passage. But it has a, a, a lot of problems. Number one, is it adds uh, a work of man uh, to uh, salvation. That I am, not, I am saved by putting my faith in Jesus Christ and then my work of being water baptized. That says that what Jesus did on the cross for our sins isn't enough. It needs to be supplemented with, uh, with, with, with my works. Nowhere in, in the scripture uh, does, it, does it speak of us salvation being anything but a gift from God uh, that is completely accomplished by Jesus. And then, and I think that everyone, of course, has to interpret every portion of the Bible in kind of the larger context of, uh, of, of, of the Bible in order to understand a passage. And, and, and uh, this they had failed to do. We think about the thief on the cross as a classic example that defies that kind of an understanding of what Peter is teaching here. Uh, Jesus didn't say to him, man, there is no way we're going to get you water baptized on this cross. You came so close. There's nothing I can do for you. No, he said, today you will be with me in paradise. The same Peter 
in later on in Acts chapter 3 he said he's going to preach his second sermon at, at Solomon's colonnade and there he stresses only repentance and turning to God for in order for our sins to be uh, wiped out he makes no mention of water baptism uh, the same Peter does the exact same thing in Acts chapter 10 when uh, the Holy Spirit comes upon the entire household of Cornelius and they're born again they they were born again and the Holy Spirit fell upon them in the middle of Peter's sermon. Now that can bum a pastor out, a preacher. Didn't even get to finish his sermon. God broke in and just did it. There's no baptism. Immediately, they're saved because of their faith in Jesus Christ. It, it, and, and there's all the pa- so many passages that you could go on in, in speaking to this thing in, in, in terms of salvation is based upon faith in Christ and that alone. I think about P- the Apostle Paul, though, his comments concerning baptism would be absolutely unthinkable if baptism was a part of salvation. When he declared in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 14, I thank God that I baptized none of you except for Crispus and Gaius, lest anyone should say that I had baptized in my own name. And yes, I also baptized the house of Stephanus. Brethren, besides, I do not know whether I baptized any other, for Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, not with the wisdom of words, lest the cross of Christ should be made of no effect. And so, uh, uh, clearly, if salvation was tied to to baptism, uh, Paul would have never written something like that. When Peter calls on them to be saved from this perverse generation he's he's calling on them to separate themselves from uh, the thinking and the attitudes of uh, the generation that was uh, 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 that rejected the perfection of jesus and uh, uh, and a world that would crucify him uh, all over again if it was given a chance and uh, in order to escape the crookedness of their sin. Again, an aspect of, uh, of, of repentance as he calls them to separate themselves now uh, to God. And their response to uh, this in verse 41, Though, then those who gladly received this word, they were baptized, and that day about 3,000 souls uh, were um, added to them. Now, you would think, so the first sermon that gets preached on the day of Pentecost, the church explodes in size. It goes from 120 in an upper room, at least there in Jerusalem, to now 3,120 uh, in the city of Jerusalem. That's quite a sermon that Peter uh, preached here. And uh, you, uh, you would think that as, as Peter has been as pointed as he's been in speaking to what is very much a religious uh, congregation come to celebrate the Jewish feast of, of Pentecost, uh, that Peter might have been in danger of, of being stoned himself or, or that uh, this message would have fallen on deaf ears. No way it's going to penetrate all of the religious indoctrination that these Jews would have. Uh, would have. And yet 3,000 received his word and they put their faith in Jesus and entered into the kingdom of God. Gladly uh, they were uh, baptized. That sermon could not have been easy for 
that religious crowd to accept. It's one thing to call, call on a, um, somebody who is, uh, is given themselves over to drugs or over to alcohol or over to sexual immorality or over to crime and to say to them, you need to repent. Uh, that call to repent can be very hard for that person in the natural strength to heed that call to repent because of what they, the sin they will have to give up in order to repent. It's even worse, it's e not worse, it's even harder when you and I are talking to a religious person and we have to call on them to repent of the religious system that they have invested their entire life into, but will not lead them to Jesus for salvation. And for them to stop and to be able to turn from something that they have invested their entire life in, all of their friends, all of their childhood, all of their young adult lives are invested in all of that, and now I need to turn away from that in order to now walk with Christ, a much harder thing to do. As hard as repenting of any sin would be, this is the harder thing, the repentance. And yet to their credit, they did it. They're honest in listening to what it is that Peter had, had said uh, uh, to them. And I, I think that Peter, had, I certainly operate in that this way. I just figure everybody has a right to hear the truth. And led by the Spirit, I have as a Christian a responsibility to let them know the truth about God and their salvation. What they do with it, I have no control over. That's between them and God. But our responsibility is to let them know where they stand before God and then let them make the decision. It would have looked, if you had looked at this in the natural, you would have looked and said, this is going to be a dud. Not only is nobody going to be saved, they're going to kill Peter right there on the street. And yet it didn't happen. And we never know what will happen until we share the truth with that person's life and then give them a chance to respond in their own way to God's offer. And then in verse 42, as you've got this new church, 3,000 people saved, of course you've got 3,000 people saved, and the immediate question is going to be, what do we do with them now? We preach the gospel to them, now they're saved, now what do you do with people uh, after that? And so they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and fellowship and breaking of bread and in uh, prayer. And, uh, and the answer to that question about how the early church made disciples out of converts is a question that is not only important to pastors or leaders within the church, but really for uh, important to inform all of our expectations as Christians concerning uh, what church, uh, 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 concerning the emphasis of, of a church to help us to realize. It is important for us to realize as Christians is nobody is free 
to make the church into what they want it to be. The pattern is given to us already in the Scriptures. So people might think, well, what is the deal? What's the big deal with being a pastor? And, and he tells you what the emphasis is supposed to be in the priorities and, and uh, how easy could he... It's not only an open book test, but he gave you the answers to the test. No, the hardness of that and the, why, the reason that that needs to be made clear to us as leaders, it, the difficulty is not in knowing what the priorities are supposed to be. The difficulty is maintaining those as priorities in a local church. And it's important that not only the leaders understand what the priorities and the emphases of a local church are supposed to be, but also the congregation. Otherwise, there can be great frustration about why do they do so much of this? Why don't they do more of that? I've been waiting for them to start a jazzercise class at that church since we were down on 10th and F. Several years ago, I was at a pastor's conference and I heard one of the greatest things I've ever heard at a, at a pastor's uh, conference. And it was Don McClure, Pastor Don, who was teaching. And he made the statement, one of the most miserable places to be in life is to be in the ministry without a vision without understanding what we're aiming at and how to get there. That's as bad as it gets for a pastor or a leader in a church. I don't know what we're aiming at, and because I don't know what we're aiming at, I don't know how to get, uh, to get there. And I thought how true that is and how true ministry is uh, miserable without a vision of, of what we're aiming at and how to get there. And I think it burns an awful lot of pastors out. I mean, the ministry has enough challenges even when you know what you're aiming at and how to get there. I mean, the casualty rate of pastors in the United States of America, the number that are opting out is just an epi epidemic level. Uh, a lot of them are coming in, people to fill in behind their ranks. And, uh, but there's all of the different conferences that go on and all these things that are trying to tell us what a church needs to be, how to build a big church, and all of these kind of things. And the popularity of these conferences speak to the fact that leaders are desperate for vision. What is the church supposed to be, and how do we get there? And, uh, and that biblical vision for uh, the, uh, the church. And without having it, there's a, it, it creates a desperation in a pastor where they just start to reach out to everything in terms of trying it to, to make this church grow or to make it hold on. I, um, I knew uh, one man who I watched, uh, watched where um, he, had, he had started uh, uh, a church and uh, he yanked that church in so many directions in a, a few short years. Every time he read a book or he listened to a podcast or he went to a conference, that's the thing he's going to do. And he yanked that congregation in so many directions over the course of a few short years, it slowly began to dawn on them, this guy does not know what he's doing. He doesn't know what he's aiming at, and he doesn't know how to get there. And then they began to uh, uh, leave the church. Fortunately for us, the, 
vision for the local church is spelled out for us here in the scriptures. And so, what is the purpose of the church? What are we aiming uh, at? We've been given a commission by Jesus Christ. It's such a great commission. It's called the Great Commission, where Jesus declared to us, all authority has been given to me in heaven and in earth. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all things that I have commanded you, and lo, I'm with you always, even to the end of the age. The purpose of the church, once a person has gone from be, become a convert, is then to make disciples. And disciples are just simply mature believers in Jesus Christ who can then disciple other Christians into other converts into uh, spiritual uh, maturity. And that is what we are aiming at. We're not uh, in this to try and uh, entertain or amuse people or to build a church or to keep people uh, coming back. That's not on the agenda. The agenda is... How in the world do we make disciples and, and a spiritual maturity in their lives that they can withstand all of the opposition to Christianity, all of the opposition to them as Christians in this world and stand victoriously in, in the midst of that? And, and if, if anybody thinks that that is something that can be done uh, in a half hour a week on Sunday mornings uh, or, or isn't going to require some, some real strong means by which uh, to make disciples, then, then we're kidding, uh, kidding ourselves. And so th that's the Great Commission. The Great Commission is to make disciples. It raises the next question, and that is how does one make a disciple? And he tells us here, through the Apostles' Doctrine, Placing, they placed a great emphasis upon the teaching of the Word of God in the early church. Nobody becomes a mature Christian apart from the Apostles' Doctrine. And, and doctrine meaning teaching, something that it requires something of me to listen to, and something that I, have a, a, I bring a motivation to learn it in my own personal relationship with the Lord. The Bible, of course, Apostles' Doctrine, it's the chief means by which we learn about God and learn about His will for our lives. And if we neglect Apostles' Doctrine, then the opposite occurs. Then we will know virtually nothing about God and nothing about His will for our uh, lives. You notice it tells us here specifically that they continued steadfastly in apostles' doctrine. Why would, would we be told by the Holy Spirit that they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine except that it requires steadfastness to continue to teach the Word of God? From Genesis to Revelation, Leviticus, as well as the Gospel, according to John. That all of it needs to be built uh, into our lives uh, as, as, uh, as Christians. And, and there is great pressure to move away from that. Even within our culture where attention spans, and I realize I'm near the end of my time, so I'm not picking on any of you that are drooping at the moment. But just go ahead and stand right now and... and uh, and shake your legs out a little bit and get the blood flowing back into your, uh, into your brain. 
But there's great pressure to move away with limited attention spans and so forth, move away from the apostles' doctrine. Then there's the importance of, of fellowship. So a local church is not only to be a teaching center and a learning center, but it's also a family. Uh, fellowship is koinonia. It is having a, a fellowship with one another. It's more than having coffee out in the fellowship hall uh, after the service. It means the recognition and the nurturing of the fact that we are a family here in this church and that we look out for one another through all the ups and downs and the hiccups and the skin knees that we all go through as we're growing as Christians and we have that environment of support in the form of the body of Christ in our, in our growth at, as Christians. The breaking of bread speaks of uh, the, the Lord's Supper, not merely doing the Lord's Supper as we do every second Sunday night of the month as kind of an ordinance that we've just got scheduled, but what the Lord's Supper does is it keeps the main things of Christianity ever before us. When we take that bread and we take that cup, we're reminded of God's love. We're reminded of God's grace. We're reminded of God's forgiveness. We're reminded of the fact that He is going to return. All of these things that God knows that we continually need to be reminded of, and it keeps the focus of the church on Jesus. And it's possible for a church to become uh, about everything but Jesus. The church of Laodicea in the book of Revelation, Jesus is on the outside knocking on the door of the church to try and get in. They don't even know that the church is supposed to be about Christ. And the Lord's Supper is one of those ways that keeps our relationship with Christ, who and what God has done for us in His Son ever before us. And then prayers, just communicating with God as an expression of our uh, dependence upon uh, God. This would include the worship side of things as we offer up praise and, and worship uh, to the Lord. And so these four things, the apostles' doctrine, uh, prayer, uh, fellowship, and the breaking of bread. They have worked for 2,000 years in producing uh, disciples who are able to walk in every kind of crazy uh, anti-God environment in, in uh, human history, and they, uh, they work even today. I think that beyond uh, Acts 2.42, uh, it's important to en enlarge that uh, list uh, to three other things that have already occurred earlier in the chapter than verse 42, and that is a healthy church will be involved in evangelism, uh, in preaching. Peter has already preached you can't, you can't make disciples unless you have converts. And this would include um, missions as well as a part of a church. It would include, in terms of, of a vision for the church and making disciples, the baptism with the Holy Spirit, which happened earlier in the chapter, and then also uh, water baptism has happened and described in uh, verse uh, 41, that uh, outward expression of our faith in in Jesus Christ. There are so many ministry models out in the world today that so, so uh, many. And I'm just thankful that what God has done here in Acts chapter 2 is He has given us 
a model so that we don't spend all of our time trying to figure that out, but just doing what it is that He has uh, declared that He would uh, uh, bless. This is how we cooperate with the Holy Spirit. And then, as they made these things, the emphasis, fear came upon every soul. People had a reverence for God, a respect for things. Under the Sadducees and the Pharisees, with Judaism at that time, it was just a game. It was a money-making operation. It was hypocrisy. They all knew it. And here they realized, this is real. This is real with God. God is real. And so this... Um, fear coming upon every soul. Many wonders and signs were done through the apostles. All those who believed uh, were together and had all things in common. Uh, uh, And they sold their possessions and their goods and they divided them uh, among, uh, among all as everyone had need. There was no command by God to do this. And, um, but they did it out of the, the goodness of their heart and, and their attitude toward the rest of the body of Christ. A lot of times, some Christians will take that and they'll say, well, you know, ideally... Uh, see, Christianity uh, uh, teaches actually uh, communism. And they look at a verse like this and they view it as, as communism. It's nothing uh, of the sort. With communism, what's yours is mine. What's going on here is somebody saying voluntarily, what's mine is yours. And there's a world of difference between the two and the kind of dependency that it produces, the kind of uh, authority versus a, a, a servant uh, authority structure, the health of all of it. And so it is important when you hear that kind of thing to realize, no, this was just something they were choosing to do. And so continuing daily, continuing daily with one accord in the temple and breaking bread from house to house, they ate their food at, with gladness and simplicity. You just read it and you just go, man, that's just beautiful. And uh, praising God and having favor with all of the people And then significantly here, and the Lord added to the church daily those who were being saved. In other words, once the church becomes what God wants it to be, once we honor His priorities and what He wants emphasized in the assembling together of His people, then He is free to add to that church who He wants to add to that church and to be saved. And so that beautiful thing of whether it's however big a church may get or not get, that confidence of knowing I, we are giving God these things to make disciples. And then now what He makes of it, that's entirely up to Him. So a beautiful chapter here, and we'll, we'll stop there without going into chapter 3. I'm just kidding. Uh, you've been patient with me. Let's stand together and we'll close in prayer. Father, so much in this chapter, and none of it is dated. It's the kind of things that we need to hear over and over and over again, all the way from verse 14 all the way through to the end of this chapter. And we thank you for a chance to be able to regauge our th- uh, and uh, recalculate um, what it is that, that we're doing, what our expectations are of a church, how to view the unsaved, how to share the gospel, all of these kind of things that you've spoken into our lives tonight. 
And we thank You, Lord, for being a participant in that this evening. And we thank You that we were able to enjoy this time of worship and in Your Word tonight and to do it together. And we thank You in Jesus' name. Amen.